This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Legend of the Bones. Following in the footsteps of giants, Legend of the Bones is a chimera. A mix of old-school tabletop RPG and dark fantasy storytelling. As its name might suggest, in Legend of the Bones, the dice rule. There'll be no re-rolls, no fudging the dice, no metacurrency. The role of the bones will determine the character's destiny, and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Last time on Legend of the Bones. In the ruins of Kerodu, the party set an ambush against the cult of acolytes who were worshipping Neta, the Serpent's Queen. Positioned atop of the broken roof, Kier observed their dark ritual, and when a huge serpentine champion brought forth a woman to be sacrificed, the rogue threw a lantern and a flask of burning oil among the acolytes to interrupt the unholy rite and drive them towards the exit, where the rest of the party were waiting in a shield wall. The plan worked, and the companions were able to kill several of the acolytes before breaking formation and moving into the hall. Whilst blind, the dark acolytes were able to see via a mental image granted through a power radiating from the graven idol of Netra, which stood at the far end of the chamber. The battle was vicious and bloody, as the companions sought to avenge the death of Yora. Beric, Lena and Knut were all injured in the fight, but when only the Serpentine Champion still stood, Knut finally cleaved its head in furious wrath. Chapter 29, Part 1, Day 33, Night, Party Status, Beric, 23 out of 28 hit points, Elena, 14 out of 20 hit points, Kia, 10 out of 12 hit points, Valen, 13 out of 15 hit points, Talion, 14 out of 16 hit points, Knut, 15 out of 20 hit points. Bjorn, 12 out of 12 hit points. Arn, 12 out of 12 hit points. Spells available. Valen has memorized Soothe. Talion has memorized Poetic Prose and Resolve. Lena can pray for one second level miracle. Beric is temporarily blind through the effect of Darkness. The flagstone floor of Kerodu's mead hall was slick with the blood of the fallen, whose bodies the companions had piled unceremoniously to one side. Kier had rejoined them from the roof, and it was only now that they were able to fully take in the detail of their surroundings. Pale moonlight shone through the holes in the roof above, catching the blue-grey smoke that spiralled out of several low-burning braziers. At the far end of the hall, upon a dais, was a huge stone idol depicting Nedra, the Serpent Queen, its bejeweled eyes still glowing crimson. Either side of the effigy were two wide, low-standing bronze braziers, 
the tripod legs of which were fashioned as rearing snakes. Whilst dotted about, like frozen courtiers, were a dozen lifelike statues. Like the one in the courtyard, each was posed as if in action, and their faces bore expressions of surprise, horror and torment. Along the west wall were several doorways, leading to small chambers that had evidently been used by the acolytes as sleeping quarters, whilst the east wall had two portals, one leading to a storeroom come armory, and the other leading to double chambers that were seemingly used by the cult's leader. In the far end of the corners were two further portals, which led to the fortress's northern towers. In the centre of the hall was the pit in which the young woman was to have been thrown. She was now dressed in a simple peasant's shift, her clothing having been recovered from the leader's chambers. Lena had spoken gently with her, though she was too traumatised to say anything but mumble her name, Jenna. Lena put her cloak about the young woman's shoulders and gave her some food before joining Beric and Valen. The pair stood near the entrance to the hall, and the mage was examining the warrior's eyes. Hearing Lena approach, Beric cocked his head in the cleric's direction. How is she? The warrior asked. His eyes were milky, and it was clear that he was unable to see, but somehow he knew it was the cleric. She's traumatised, but she is alive, Lena replied. But what about you? Beric shrugged. I do not believe it will be permanent, Phelan answered for him. There is no trauma to the eyes, as far as I can tell, and see here. Phelan led the blind Beric further into the hall, until they came close to the pit. There, Beric said suddenly. I can see, or at least I can in my mind, if that makes sense. Lena looked confused. It's clear that you have been cursed, and I have also seen miracles that help the blind to see, at least temporarily. But I have not besieged the Nine, so how can this be? Whilst the acolytes encountered here have been worshipping Netra as a demigoddess, in reality she holds no such power. It is true, however, that the Serpent Queen is a servant of the Dark Gods, known colloquially as the Five, and as such, it was they who would answer the cult's unholy prayers. The jeweled eyes of the idol are enchanted by magic rather than a divine miracle, meaning that Valen can sense their power, but can he make the connection between Beric being able to see a mental picture and the idol's enchanted jewels? I am going to make an intelligence check for the mage. He will need to roll a 16 or less. Here is the roll. A 12. I am also going to make a second intelligence check for Valen, to see if he can gain further insight from the verse relayed by Brother Cadfael back in episode 24. A 9. That's a success. Okay, let's find out what all that means. Valen looked at Lena then nodded towards the idol. I believe the answer lies with those jewels, he said. How so? They radiate arcane power. I can sense it, the mage explained. We are what, fifty feet from the idol? My guess is that its power radiates that far in all directions. 
So that is how those men could see with no eyes? Yes, Phelan confirmed. We know the Netra can petrify those who meet her gaze. The mage indicated towards the statues. We have seen the evidence, and Catfile's verse tells as much. Through her gaze she doth behold immortal men that grow not old. So it makes sense that her devotees would blind themselves for protection. Yet the idol bestowed upon them a different sight. A mind's eye, if you will. Valen looked pensive. But the verse holds another clue. And neither she with husbands be, lest in her eyes she doth see. What is it? Lena asked. Her reflection, the mage said simply. Wait, Beric interrupted. I think I have an idea. But before the big man could elaborate, Kier called them. The whole company made their way over to where the rogue was standing. Look here, he said, indicating behind the effigy. Beric moved around to see what Kier had found, and there, behind the dais, was a flight of stone stairs leading down into the dark. So, I have a pivotal decision to make as a player. Beric's plan is to prize the jewels from the idol, and whilst blind, use them to allow him to descend into the underkeep to seek out and confront Nedra without penalty or risk of being petrified. At the same time, he would take the mirror given to Lena by Lady Neve back in episode 22 and attempt to turn the Serpent Queen's gaze against her. The Curse of Darkness will last another 15 game turns which equates to around an hour and a half. But continuing on now would mean that either Beric goes alone, or anyone accompanying him would need to be blindfolded, and therefore vulnerable. In addition, it would give no time to investigate the other rooms on this level, which may in turn mean missing something which might give the party an advantage. The alternative is that the party rests for the night, allowing Valen to recover his spells, but more crucially, so that Lena has access to her full range of miracles, this would enable the cleric, if successful, to blind two members of the party with a miracle of light or darkness, who would then benefit from the power of the jewels. Having said that, if the party does rest, then there will be a chance that they may encounter something in the night, and at worst, Nedra may come seeking revenge for the killing of her faithful servants. I feel torn on this decision. There is risk in both courses of action. Okay, I'm going to let the oracle decide. The question is do the party rest for the night? Rolling a d6. A 2. That's a straight no. Alright then, I need to determine a few things. Firstly, I'm going to make a morale test for Knut, Bjorn and Arn. If they pass, then they will agree to accompany Beric. Given they will need to be blindfolded, and therefore extremely vulnerable, I'm going to apply a minus 2 penalty to the roll. They will need to roll equal or less than 5 on 2d6. A 2! Wow! It doesn't get better than that! Next, Lena will use her second level miracle to call upon the 9 to bless the company. The cleric will need to roll a 17 or less for her prayer roll. A 17! That was close. The company will receive a plus 1 to all attack and damage rolls, 
as well as a plus one to morale for six turns, which equates to one hour. Finally, just before they depart, Talion will attempt to cast Resolve on the party. Like mages, bards must pass a successful intelligence test to invoke a spell. Talion's intelligence is 13. A three. The bard plays an evocative melody on his harp, which emboldens the company. They will receive a plus one to all saving throws for one game turn. So, Beric, Lena, Kier, and the contingent of Skarni will descend into the underkeep, whilst Phelan and Talion will remain in the meat hall with Jenna. Okay, with that set, let's get back to the story. Chapter 29, Part 2, Day 33, Night. Party Status The party status is unchanged, except that Talion has cast Resolve, and Lena can no longer pray for any miracles. No, Beric, you must not, Lena pleaded, in response to the warrior explaining his plan. It would be suicide to go alone. Lena speaks the truth, Beric. We know not the full extent of Nedra's power, Phelan added. She has lived for at least a thousand years. That is time enough to grow strong. I hear you, Beric conceded. But only I can walk without fear of nature's gaze. It has to be this way. No, Knut interjected. We have fought and bled together. The Skane leave not a friend to face death alone. Yeah, count me in, Kier announced, handing Beric the two garnets that Rogue had just prized from the idol. I ain't letting you have all the fun, you big lump. And I will come also. Beric gave a short, stifled laugh and nodded. Huh. Very well. But Valen, you and Talion should stay. If all goes ill, you will need to take Jenna to safety and tell Lord Conwyn of our fate. The mage nodded, though his eyes were on Lena. Before you go, gather around, Talion instructed, unstrapping the small harp from his back and refastening it at the front as the company came together in a circle around the bard. He closed his eyes, rested his long fingers upon the strings, and as he began to pluck, the runic tattoo upon his forehead began to glow a pale blue, his eyelids flicked open, eyes no longer brown, but rather a deep emerald green. Talion's voice rang out. He sang in a strange, unfamiliar language that only Valen understood, weaving a melody to accompany the music. His voice was otherworldly, haunting and ethereal. The companions could feel the music permeating their bodies and minds. And as it did so, each felt a sense of determination, confidence, and resolve. The bard struck the final note, which resonated momentarily about the hall. Talion's eyes returned to their normal colour, and the tattoo no longer glowed. Go, my friends, with courage in your hearts. The company broke circle, and those going made for the stairs. As Lena moved, she felt a hand on her arm. She turned. It was Valen. Lena. The mage's eyes were glassy, and his voice low, but full of emotion. 
I... I cannot lose you. Lena put her hand to touch the side of his face, her fingers lightly brushing the hairs of his short beard. If I do not go, I will lose myself. I cannot let others walk where I must tread, she said softly. I know. Balan's head dropped, but Lena gently lifted it again by his chin. But whatever happens, know that while the nine have my faith, you have my heart. She lifted up on the tips of her toes and pressed her lips against his. Then she turned and without saying another word, followed the others down into the darkness. Valen stood there for a while, his heart filled with a tumultuous whirlpool of joy mixed with fear. Lena, he said under his breath, Ruin de Gaidi. So, as the party descends into the Underkeep, it's time to determine a few things. As you may have already ascertained, Nedra, the Serpent Queen, resides in the Underkeep. More on her later, but suffice to say that apart from her other powers, Nedra is also a powerful sorceress, with the spellcasting ability of a 6th level magic user. One of her spells is Clairvoyance, which Nedra has used to see through the eyes of her Serpentine Champion in order to witness and savour the terror of those poor unfortunates who have been sacrificed over the years by her devotees. Now, I have slightly bent the rules of the clairvoyant spell, which according to the basic expert rules, is obstructed by a layer of lead or rock more than two foot thick. But as I have not calculated the thickness of the stone between the two levels of the fortress, I am prepared to let that slide. So let's see whether Nedra has used the spell so far. To make her casting roll, Nedra needs to roll a 15 or less. A 9. So the Serpent Queen witnessed the party's intrusion and the subsequent battle, and she knows her servants have been killed. In addition, Nedra has gained an appreciation of the party's strength, both collectively and individually, which may be crucial in the forthcoming showdown. But I must not get ahead of myself. Let's get back to the narrative. Chapter 29, Part 3, Day 33, Night Party Status The party status is unchanged. The air grew noticeably cooler as the companions descended down into the bowels beneath the fortress of Kerudu. Beric led the way, slowly yet purposefully, his boots tapping softly on the stone stairs, the steps worn down by countless generations of feet. The eye in his mind had no need of illumination, yet Kier, who followed after, held aloft a flaming torch which gave ample light for the others to walk safely. None of them had yet pulled their blindfolds over their eyes, in the hope that Beric could give them fair warning of any danger. The flickering torchlight danced upon ancient engravings, carved into the walls, depicting events long forgotten in the tapestry of time. The warrior shivered involuntarily 
and he could feel a sticky, cold sweat upon his body. Despite the fear that was rising within him, Beric could not help but marvel at the labour that must have gone into the construction of such a place, cut as it was into the hill itself, but done so with craft and care. The silence was deafening, broken only by the echo of his own footsteps and Kier's ragged breathing behind. The soft glow of torchlight emanated from below, and soon the stairs terminated in a small chamber, perhaps twenty-five feet in length. At the far end of the east wall, an open archway was the chamber's only exit, whilst the west wall was lined with stone benches, above which several crimson robes hung from wooden pegs. In the centre of the room, upon a granite plinth, was a wide copper bowl, filled with a sweetly aromatic liquid. What is this place? Beric questioned in a low voice. If I were to hazard a guess, I would say it is a vestry, Lena replied. What's this for? Kier asked, indicating the liquid inside the bowl. Do not touch it, Lena warned sharply. Kier pulled back his hand, and for a moment his face wore the expression of a scolded child. Forgive me, Kier, the cleric's voice softened. This is an unholy place. It may be cursed, she explained. Read oil or water. I expect it is used in a ritual to cleanse or anoint, though I cannot be sure. Lena looked at the strange symbols engraved on the bowl and frowned. I wish Valen were here. The companions moved to the archway, which led to a second, larger chamber. This room had two exits, one straight ahead on the east wall, which led into pitch darkness, and another wider archway to the south, from which the soft flicker of torchlight emanated. Opposite, stood against the centre of the north wall, was a stone altar, the sides carved with a mass of coiling interwoven serpents. Atop the altar was a small copper dish, as well as a long spoon-like implement, and fixed to the wall above was a large disc of burnished gold. The disc was two feet in diameter and delicately embossed as a stylized sun. The disc! Lena exclaimed in a whisper. Well, what are we waiting for? Kier asked rhetorically, moving to the altar, but then stopped as he saw the contents of the dish. Ugh! Laying inside was a pair of bloodied eyeballs, the stringy muscles still attached. Beck came to inspect, grimacing as he witnessed the grisly discovery. Now we know how those men lost their sight, he remarked grimly. Let's just get the disc and get out of here. I've had a bellyful of this place. Kier nodded and started to climb atop the altar. Everyone stopped as ghostly whispers suddenly swirled like wind about the chamber. The voices beckoned them, urged them, called them to follow before seemingly passing through the southern archway. The companions have become the target of the homebrew spell Lure, which has been cast by Nedra. The spell compels 1d4 targets per level of the caster to move to a specific location within 120 feet for one turn. The targets maintain all other aspects of free will and will not put themselves in clear danger, for example by walking off a cliff. But the overwhelming desire to move to the location cannot be ignored. If restrained, the target will attempt to continue but not act with hostility to those attempting the restraint. Line of sight is not required by the caster, 
but an awareness of the target's presence and location is. Targets may attempt a save versus spell to resist the effects. I made a successful casting roll for Nedra off mic, and Nedra's spellcasting level does mean that her minimum result is enough to bewitch the entire party, so everyone in the party will need to pass a save versus spell or be unable to resist walking into the chamber to the south. First up, Beric. An 18, that's a success. Lena. A 17, another success. Kia. An 11, that's a fail. Knut. 16, the Skane succeeds. Bjorn. A 1, that's a fail. And Arn. 3, that's also a fail. Okay then. Kia was desperate to know what was in the next chamber. It was just like those times back in Godsport, when he saw a locked door and a sign saying, Keep out. His curiosity had always gotten the better of him, and more often than not, led to trouble. But that didn't matter. All he knew was that there was something he desired to see through that archway. He could not explain it. He knew it made no sense. Beric was right. They should take the disc and get out. He would just have a quick look. There was no harm in that. He saw Bjorn and Arn already moving towards the portal. They had the right idea. Leaving the disc, he climbed down from the altar and began to follow after. Bjorn! Arn! Knut called after his compatriots. But it was too late. The two men had already passed into the chamber beyond. Kier felt a hand on his arm. It was Beric. What are you doing? The warrior asked. I need to say. Kia shrugged away the big man's hand, and without saying another word, he ran through the archway. Beric looked at Lena and Knut, who both wore expressions of shocked dismay. He cursed, for in his heart he knew they were about to face a deadly peril. Come on! Thank you for listening to Legend of the Bones. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you like what you've heard, then please consider giving it a positive review in your podcatcher of choice. Once again, I need to shout out to my fantastic cast of voices. There's just one in this episode. Returning in the role of Knut is John Cohen, creator of Tale of the Manticore. Thank you, John. You always deliver, and I'm grateful as ever. I'll put John's links in the show notes. A while back, John and I sat down and recorded a chat where we discuss the whys and wherefores, as well as the trials and tribulations of doing this thing that we do. You can find that conversation on John's podcast channel, Tale of the Manticore. And while you're there, check out the rest of his amazing show. Once again, I must also shout out to the amazingly talented Jim Hurst, who provided the music for Talion's spell Resolve in this episode. Jim, you always deliver. I'll put Jim's links in the show notes. You can also help by liking or retweeting new episode announcements, or by recommending the show online or to a friend. You really can't beat the power of word of mouth. Alternatively, if you'd like to show your appreciation by buying me a metaphorical cup of tea, 
then I now have a Kofi page at ko-fi.com forward slash legend of the bones. Any donations will go towards the show's running costs. I'd also love to know what you think of the show, and I do respond to every message I receive. So with that in mind, you can contact me on Twitter at legendbones, Mastodon at legendbones at ttrpg-hangout.social, Instagram at legendofthebones, email at legendofthebones at gmail.com, or go to legendofthebones.blogspot.com for show notes, house rules, character profiles, art, maps, and more. Join me next time to find out what awaits our adventurers as the Bones decide their fate. None shall escape the destiny of Bone. Are you old enough to remember physical gaming magazines? You know the ones. The ones you bought from your local game store or ordered via mail. The ones we couldn't wait to read back in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. The ones that filled our little gaming hearts with joy. Well, I'm bringing back that joy. D12 Monthly is a zine for the world's oldest role-playing game and comes out at the beginning of each and every month. You can get a PDF for free from my website or get a printed physical copy sent to you by joining my Patreon or buying direct from the site. Better than just getting bills in the mail, go to yumdm.com. That's Y-U-M-D-M dot com to scratch that itch that's been bugging you for the last 20 years.